So let's arrive. One of the things we do in our culture is we barely arrive before we start doing. So it's always a good idea to really land in place, to feel the place that you're at, and to allow every molecule to come to rest where you are. to feel the seat on which you're sitting. And especially when we come to meditation, our seat is really important. We take a seat. And we take a seat in all of our nobility. And in this Buddhist practice, nobility is our birthright. The texts always begin with, O nobly born, you sons and daughters of the Buddha. And so when we come to sit in our seat, we can feel the nobility. And we, we establish ourselves in that nobility by establishing a posture that is dignified, upright, and energetic, while being relaxed and open. So allow your spine to be upright and erect, but not overstretched or efforting. And yes, indeed, allow every molecule to arrive here. We can be fragmented during our day, paying attention to so many things. And so when we come to take our seat, an important establishment is the establishment of knowing the body. Letting the molecules come together, the posture is dignified, and to notice whether there are parts of the body that feel tight or tense, And to go there without vilifying or making it wrong, see if you can allow those parts of the body, whether it's the furrowed brow or the tightly clenched eyes or lips or the jaw that's set too tight or the shoulders that are too hiked up to the ears, Or the, or the shallow breath, 
or the tight belly. See if you can, if you find any of those places of tension or tightness. If you can allow them through taking a deep breath in and a deep breath out to let go even a little bit without forcing anything or making anything happen. Just allowing the breath to move freely in the body. Your eyes can be open or closed. If they're open, see if you can just open them slightly and let your gaze be soft on the floor. This way a little light comes in, especially if you're feeling sleepy or tired. It might be helpful to keep the eyes open, slightly open. Let some light in. If you're feeling as if the mind is scattered and distracted, a little bit restless, it might be helpful to close the eyes. But just know that the upper, le- upper lid can rest gently on the lower lid. Let your jaw unclench. If you're sitting on a chair, to have your feet two feet in front of you on flat on the floor, parallel. If you're sitting on a cushion, see if you can sit far enough to the front of the round cushion, the zafu, so that your knees touch the square cushion, the zaputan. And if that's not possible, it might be helpful to support the knees. This way the body won't get tired having to hold itself up. Just establish mindfulness or non-reactive, non-judgmental attention to the body sitting here. doesn't require a lot of energy or a lot of doing. What it requires is gathering the energy of, of the mind, this attentive energy that we have, this ability we have to attend, to pay attention, gathering that and aiming it at the movement of the breath in the body. And this paying attention is soft and gentle. And the breath moving in the body is natural. So is it possible in just this half-breath, this in-breath right now, to know it fully. From the moment it starts with the air coming in through the nostrils, coming up through 
the um, the whole nose and then coming back out through the nostrils following the journey of that breath in and out very simple this is a way of gathering all of the energy of the mind which can tend to be somewhat wild aiming it and allowing it to come to some peaceful rest just by being with feeling the rhythm of the of the breath it may be easier for you to find the breath at the movement of the belly or the chest the rising and falling that's okay too it's not a magical thing it's just a way to gather the energy of the mind from its wildness and see if it can be here presently letting go of all of the proliferations and ruminations of the mind which will definitely come and go not following them but allowing them to be in the background as we place the breath at the foreground of our attention Sounds come and go. Sensations in the body come and go. Thoughts arise and peak and pass away. Perhaps even smells and tastes and touch. We allow all of that to stay in the background, not ignoring it, but just not making it the focus of our attention. But perhaps after one or two breaths even, a thought may forcefully enter the mind. 
and grab the attention. It's not a problem or a mistake. The mind is, the function of the mind is to think. But during our meditation, we let go of our usual habit of following whatever thought pops into the mind. We notice it's come, it's appeared without our bidding. And if we catch it, we notice that it's a thought, we notice the thought process, how it arrives, peaks, and then disappears. Or it may capture the attention and we may find ourselves following a thread of thought. The mind proliferates, makes associations, jumps on this whole train of associations and starts in one place and ends up in a totally different place. It's not to be judged or vilified or think that there's something wrong, but actually to notice that's happened when you can. Notice how the mind has been captured. Feel what it feels like to have been captured. And then feel what it feels like to be sitting here just knowing. Not following through on thoughts of past or future but just breathing and knowing the breath. And if we do that a thousand times, that journey of moving from breath to thought to breath, that's okay. We're training the mind, and in any training there is a an up and down, a, a, a bell curve of our ability to do it and, and to, to jump off and then to do it again. It's not a problem. If something has captured your attention, And it's difficult to let it go. You have a choice. You can choose rather than simply allowing the thought to come and peak and disappear. To let go of the breath and turn the attention to this thought, this sensation, this smell, this taste, whatever has appeared. And then notice how that comes and peaks and disappears. And when it's no longer capturing the attention, returning the attention to the breath.
takes patience, determination, and a generous and kind heart.
I've heard lately many people say that we're living in terrible times. How many people believe that? Few reluctant hands. How many people think we're living in wonderful times? Few reluctant hands. So the rest are neutral, I imagine. Just recently, Pope Francis talked about World War III and pleaded with our leaders to not act in such a way that leads to World War III. We've been, with technology in the condition that it's in, we've been privy to some pretty cruel uh, acts. And what's interesting is that sometimes if these acts happen and we hear about it, in some ways we can, you know, we're, we're moved by it, but it's not really that affecting. But in this day of videos and people being caught in the act or actually videoing their acts of cruelty, we're horrified. And certainly in the in these, these summer months, seeing videos of black men being choked to death, or hearing of people being shot, killed because they're of the color of their skin, it rattles our being, or we see images of rockets being hurled from Israel to Gaza and from Gaza to Israel. And now we're told that there'll be yet another conflagration, in a way, in the Middle East. Of bombings that will surely, surely kill innocent men, women, and children. So, the question arises, you know, what do we do as human beings living in this world, knowing that we're connected to all other human beings? Is there something we can do? Is there some way we should be? Is there something that 
we need to understand so that the world doesn't explode in violence and um, destruction, self-destruction. And I say this with having heard interviews with Tavis Smiley, who's just written a book on Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King's um, last year, the last year of his life, in which um, Tavis talks about the fact that he was vilified in the last year of his life, having um, essentially blown the whistle on the fact that the United States is the largest purveyor of violence. That Lyndon Johnson turned against him, the New York Times turns against him, the, the Washington Post turned against him, the whole liberal press turned against him. All turned against him because he spoke out and declared what he saw. So we come here together and we sit together and we watch our breath. And we hope to train the mind to somehow calm the organism. And from that calm, to see clearly and open the heart to develop kindness and compassion and wisdom, and not only to train the mind and develop these qualities, but most importantly, to exhibit them in the world. And when I say exhibit, I don't mean, you know, look at me, I'm this great, kind, compassionate, generous person, but really to activate these qualities in our lives so that as we move around the world, whatever the, our corner is, that we are not contributing more violence, more anger, more hatred, but that we're bringing peace, kindness and generosity, compassion, friendship. And I know sometimes in this Buddhist practice that it feels, especially if you are someone who is particularly moved by the injustice in our communities, in our culture, by uh, the degradation of our planet, by what we are doing to contribute to climate change, and so many other ways that we could sit and enumerate about uh, what's going on, that perhaps this, uh, this movement in the heart and in the mind to uh, move towards peace and kindness and love and generosity and compassion and wisdom 
may not feel like enough. And we've had that talk a lot in this group, right? And, and we've talked about it. We've talked about the fact that essentially, even if we're activists, that we do want to come from a, a ground of peace and kindness. Because the last thing we want to do is add more of the hatred and the violence to the world. And also that we ourselves, when we, um, when we struggle for peace, or we struggle for equity or for equality, that what we don't want to be doing is adding more injustice or to whoever, whether it's even if it's the perpetrators of the deepest kind of injustice. And that from that place of peace and kindness and generosity and love and compassion, that there is a clear seeing, there is a quality of clear seeing that happens when we're not being reactive, when we're not being reactive about every little thing that happens. And it's a tricky place, it's a tricky edge of being responsive without being reactive. And it's a tricky edge of moving the heart towards compassion, even for those who are doing the most injustice. So I want to talk tonight not about, not so much about whether, you know, that's true and whether that's possible. It's a thesis, and it's certainly the, um, the basis of the Buddhist teachings is that we purify our own hearts and our own minds. And so that when we act in the world, that's the place from which we're acting. But what I want to talk about is how that actually happens in the face of rage, which can feel very justified and is justifiable in the face of fear and anxiety. What's a person to do? How, how do we, if we've been practicing for a while, if we've been hearing the teachings for a while and we've been really embodying them and putting them into practice, we have this maybe a little bit wrong-headed or idealistic is a better word, idea of how we should be in the world and how we should uh, react or respond to what is happening in the world. And much of the time, because we are sensitive, um, much of the time, the reality or the, 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 the actual feelings that we have are not at all aligned 
with our idea or our image about what it would mean to be a good Buddhist, if I can use that phrase, right? Because it's a little silly, but, but you know what I mean, right? So we think we have some idea of what it's going to be like when we reach that goal of awakening or enlightenment and how we're going to be. And damn it, we're not anywhere close to it, right? We're not even a million miles away from it. Because all of these emotions and all of these ways of seeing the world rile us up. You know, so we're going to go on a climate march, you know. How are we to be? Are we angry? Are we upset? Are we full of rage? Are we afraid? All of those emotions don't feel as if they're aligned, actually. There's like a cognitive dissonance between what we think we've heard in the teachings and what's actually coming up in our bodies, our minds, and our hearts. Anybody recognize that? So that's what I want to talk about tonight. So I've been practicing, I practice, especially in the beginning of my practice, I practiced sometimes at Zen centers and with a Zen teacher. And at the beginning of each day or each sitting, they would recite the Bodhisattva vow which said, sentient beings are numberless. I vow to awaken them all. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to master it. I vow the Dharma gates are innumerable. I vow to enter them all. And the, I appreciate that, uh, that vow, because in one way what it does is it completely confounds your mind, right? And that's what I like about it, because I tend to be a very mental person, right? I tend to like, like my thought thing to explain the world. But as I've grown older, I'm beginning to uh, understand that there's something beyond what this uh, limited mind thinks. And to, to pay attention more to the irrational and to the intuitive and to see where that leads. But what we're really talking about in that vow is that we vow to awaken with all sentient beings and to bring compassion and be present for all of life so that our life being interconnected with all beings brings awakening. This is pretty daunting, right? I've tried it with my own family. 
It's not been such a, it's not been easy. I think I've failed often. I have a sister here, so she can vouch for that. <laughs> I don't mean you. <laughs> so, we sit, we come and we sit. You know, partly because we're, that's what we're about, is, is really learning deeply about our interconnection and learning how to be good citizens. I, I use that word, which may be a little bit more political than a, than a, a, a spiritual word, but how to be good human beings in a way that blesses every human being that we come in contact with. There's a story of the Buddha, and there's a conflict between Magadha and Kapilavatu, which are um, were in the Buddha's kingdom. And the king of Magadha felt insulted and thought the, the Kapilavatus weren't acting properly and decided to attack them. He, thought, he felt insulted by them. And the Buddha prevailed on him to, uh, to not attack them. And it didn't work. And I like that story because it tells me, it, it reminds me how human the Buddha was and that actually his awakening is possible for me too. So the king got armies and was on his way to Kapilavatu. And the Buddha went out into where he knew the king would have to pass, and he sat under this dead tree on the road between the two kingdoms in the, in the blast, full blast of the really hot sun, and waited for the chariots and the horses to come along. Of course, the king was at the front. He wasn't watching on TV like our kings do these days, right? So the king saw the Buddha, and he said, what are you doing sitting under this dead tree in the hot sun? And the Buddha said, I feel at peace and cool in my heart under this tree because it is growing in my native land. And as he answered that with a kind of tenderness, the Buddha's answer pierced the heart of the king. He felt the dedication of the people to the land, and he bowed, and he returned to his land. Later on, he felt insulted again, and he was incited to war again. And the Buddha pleaded for peace, and the king wouldn't listen again, and he said he was going to go to war. And the Buddha sat again, and the king saw him, and the king saw him sitting under the dead tree in the heat of the sun. And he said, I see you're seated there. And he just went on and started the war. Right? Buddha was completely unable to stop him. 
And the Buddha said, ordinary people look at results. The wise look at causes. And if one looks, in fact, closely at war, there are no victories. The wise look at causes. There's a great story about Ariratna, who's the um, a, a man in Sri Lanka who proposed a peace plan between the Tamils and the Buddhists. Terrible civil war between the Tamils and the indigenous Buddhists. And they call him Ariratna, the Gandhi of uh, Sri Lanka. And he gathered together thousands of people, thousands of people came to this convention because Ariratna said he had a peace, a plan for peace. And when he presented the plan, it was a 500-year plan. And he said, the reason that it's a 500-year plan is because it's taken 500 years for the, our nation to learn conflict including colonialism. And there was immigration from India because of racism and economic injustice. And so I propose a peace plan, he said, which will take 500 years to erase all of the history of those 500 years of colonialism and justice and all of that. that I'll have a plan for six months. I'll have a plan for one year. After one year, we'll rearticulate what we're doing. And we'll see how it worked for the first six months. After a year, we'll come back. We'll look. After, after that year, we'll decide what we're going to do. After five years, we'll come back. We'll look. We'll see. And it will take us 500 years. So no rush. No rush. It was a perfect example of looking at the causes and not reacting to the moment's conditioning. And we have other examples of Nelson Mandela being in prison for 27 years and walking out with the most amazing dignity and nobility, graciousness of heart. What we begin to understand as we do this practice and we listen to the teachings is that we're all subject to the worldly winds, to joy and sorrow, pain and pleasure, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, that they all come. And in the midst of these, these winds that come into our lives, these changing circumstances, if we are clear, if we are compassionate, we begin to see our own nature and we begin to see our way through what it means to be alive. We begin to get the 
story that's been told to us that a successful life is a life of just unending happiness and peace and that if you're really successful, if you're really doing it right, you won't get these vicissitudes. You'll get joy but not sorrow. You'll get pleasure but not pain. You'll get gain but not loss. We learn this, our, our Buddha nature, the way through. And we begin to learn the path of compassion, to follow this path of compassion no matter what. Now, what does this path of compassion mean? What it means is because we wisely understand and recognize the vicissitudes of life, that we also react understand our human reactions to it. And what, what it means is that we begin to take all of this as our path into awakening, our path into compassion. That this idealized way we think of being pure and uh, equanimous and compassionate and kind as, a, as an understanding of what works in the world, what is helpful in the world, is not the same as being human. It's not the same as how we are from moment to moment to moment to moment. And our practice of meditation is actually to show us that. It's actually to have us know more and more and more deeply how we are from moment to moment and to see how the circumstances are constantly changing and that our work is not to bypass it or to go around it or to go over it or to transcend it but actually to go through it. That the rage that we feel when we hear of Ferguson or Staten Island or all of these different ways in which injustice and racism keeps asserting itself, that that rage is actually the path. And I don't mean that it's the path of that we react to that rage and we take up a gun or a, or a weapon and we say we're going to do exactly the same thing. But actually our practice of being here means that we're here with every single mind state and every single emotion that arises in every moment. And that that is how compassion is built. It's not built by pretending that we're a good Buddhist or that we're this human being that never gets riled up 
or never gets angry or jealous or envious. But that we actually start as the, the Tibet, in the Tibetan tradition, they talk about the peacocks, that there's, there's poison in their system, and that it's that very poison that actually makes the beautiful plumage. And in that same regard, we, t- we use the crucible of our meditation, the crucible of our mindfulness. We place the poison in it. And through that we become more and more deeply understanding of what it means to be human in, in its complete array, in its complete display. So when we learn how to meditate, we get agitated, we get anxious, fear comes up. We, we remember injustices done to us, injustices that we've wrought on others. I've told the story often of being in a, in a very long retreat and actually having the experience of reliving an, an, uh, an event in my life where my mom, because of the violence of my father, had to leave. And as a five-year-old girl, I felt that as abandonment. Right. And in this retreat, I relived this, this experience for five days over and over and over and over again. And I wept and I cried and I, I, I did everything. I sat as much as I could, but I would, it would reassert itself over and over and over again. But I stuck with my practice and I stuck with all of the feelings and all of the ways in which abandonment felt, the pain of it, the fear of it, the feeling of having done something wrong as a five-year-old to be abandoned in that way. And I meditated and I cried and I wept and I walked and I did everything that I was supposed to do in that retreat. And on the fifth day, sitting in the meditation hall, I sat in meditation and what I saw were the faces of millions of five-year-old girls, millions of them, who had been abandoned. Millions. And they would, one would come and her face would be right here and she would look at me with tears rolling down her eyes and then she would move. And then another would come and the same thing and over for hours I sat there in that meditation hall and I sat with these five-year-old girls. And I finally understood it was abandonment. I hadn't been abandoned. It was the abandonment that we all have felt sometime in our lives as human beings. 
It's not, it's not personal. And in fact, at that time in my life, my, my mother hadn't really abandoned me. She just had to leave because she had to leave a violent situation. But this five-year-old mind interpreted it as abandonment. And that, that was a profound understanding in that moment of the connectedness of our human hearts, that we've all experienced abandonment and disgrace and shame and fear and anxiety and oppression in some way, shape, or form. It's the commonality of it is mind-boggling. And that even though we feel it personally, and of course we do because we're human beings, it doesn't mean that we have to get stuck there. Because if we get stuck there, then we are powerless. That is not a powerful place to be. But if we can move with that abandonment, with that fear, with that anxiety, with that disappointment, that sadness, that loss, that grief, whatever it is, if we know it fully, if we're able to turn to it and let it in, which is what meditation trains us to do, is to face the difficult, to be with that part of ourselves that we don't want to know, we don't want to see, and to do it with perseverance and patience and kindness, loving kindness. Something else opens. The compassionate heart opens. And courage opens. And courage is not, as we all know, it's not the absence of fear. But it's the ability to be with fear in its rawest state and to act nevertheless. So what is it like for you to feel rage? What is it like to feel despair? What is it like to feel powerless? Do you know? Or is it something that we, you know, the minute it, these feelings start to come up, we have a drink, or we call a friend, or we take a walk, or we watch television, or we do whatever we can not to have those feelings. Because we've been raised in a pleasure culture. It's good if it's pleasant, it's bad if it's unpleasant. And so we keep moving. And it's not to say that we, you know, we become masochists and try to feel the unpleasant. God knows there's enough of it out there. We don't need to, we don't need to manufacture it. We don't need to go and find it. We don't need to do anything to bring it or attract it to us. The fact that we have a human heart, a human body, and a human mind 
brings it. So the practice is what brings dignity to these emotions and doesn't leave us sprawled on the floor, unable to move or to act. But there's a kind of strength that comes when we're able to face our most unwanted fear, our deepest rage, our longest standing anxiety, when we're actually able to do it with some graciousness of heart. This bodhisattva nature that I was referring to in the beginning at the Zen centers, the Buddha's way is boundless. I vow to master it. This bodhisattva nature, to fulfill it, we need to understand sorrow and the end of sorrow. We need to be able to touch sorrow deeply so that we can find freedom of heart. And so, whatever we want to do in the world to meet injustice, whatever we want to do in the world to see if we can build just a little bit more equity. Whatever we want to do in the world, to correct poverty, whatever we want to do to change a system that imprisons one in a hundred people, that leaves Two million, I think it's growing, it's actually gone beyond two million people incarcerated. Whatever we want to do to stop the madness of the despoliation of the environment, we start first with facing our own disappointment, our own sorrow. That's the strength, that's the poison that gives our feathers their beauty. Sufi master Pir Vilyat Khan teaches us, Overcome any bitterness that may have come because you are not up to the magnitude of the pain entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, you are sharing in a certain measure of that cosmic pain and are called upon to meet it in joy instead of self-pity. 
O nobly born, you are the sons and daughters of the Buddha. You are the sons and daughters of the Buddha. Your practice confirms that. It affirms you as a noble being. And what that noble being is defined as in our teachings is one that has learned suffering, causes of suffering, the clinging mind, the path to the end of suffering, and the liberation from suffering. And that's what I wish for you. Thank you. So I'm very happy to hear any questions or comments that you have. Hi, I was wondering how often do you meditate? How often do you meditate? Once a day or? Do you want me to tell you that? That's very private information. How often I meditate? I meditate 16 hours a day. That's about how, how long I'm awake. Or were you referring to retreats? Or, or were you really interested in my practice? In your, in your practice. And tell me why, you ask. I don't know, I'm just curious. Because I'm like such an anxious person, and I thought... You're an anxious person, and put, put the microphone closer to you so I can actually hear you. Oh, that was it. That I'm just anxious, and I wondered if like meditating more would lessen that. Would lessen anxiety. Have you been medi- How long have you been meditating? Well, I do like deep breathing mm-hmm. exercises every mm-hmm. day. But, but you don't meditate? I no. So why haven't you so is this the first time you've come to a meditate? Oh, but you were late. Or you no, I'm serious because I didn't see because when I asked I didn't see your hand up. Sorry? She did? I didn't see Uh no, I I think I, I got deep breathing confused with meditating. Oh, I, thought I see. For some okay. reason, I yeah, sort yeah. of think of them as yeah, the same. Yeah, because there was somebody there, but I didn't think it was you that had said that they were, they, no, oh, that's right. You said this was your first time here, but that you, you did meditate, and I didn't ask what kind of, med- sometimes I do, but I didn't tonight. So you, you, you talk about deep breathing as meditation. They're not the same? Well, it depends on your state of mind. It depends on what you're doing with the mind. So meditation, you know, we talk about it in terms of technique because we have to give instructions, right? But actually the instructions need to, and sometimes we don't, emphasize 
that the technique is really a technique. The, the end of meditation is not the technique, but actually the state of mind that you bring to meditation, which is one that is open and present for the, for whatever our experience is right here and now in this moment. So, so the breath is a wonderful way of working with anxiety. I think it's a very wise thing to do if you, if you're feeling anxious. Usually you'll notice that your breath is getting shallow, right? So to take deep breaths is very helpful. But that's different from meditation. Meditation is actually a cultivation of the mind and heart. So it's, and the way that we cultivate the mind and heart is we actually train the mind to be present for what's happening now. But it takes quite a while for it to even start to be able to do that. You may get glimpses of it, but not really long periods of it at, for, for quite a while in the beginning. Because the mind is so crazy. They, in the text, they, they say it's like a drunken monkey stung by a scorpion, right? And isn't that, we laugh because that's how it feels, right? That's exactly how it feels. So it takes a while for the mind to calm down, you know, in a sustained enough way to begin to really see clearly the nature of this mind and heart and body, right? So the technique is, uh, is designed for that. And the technique that we teach in the beginning is a really small part of the me- the whole all the meditation instructions. So eventually, if you come, you know, t- either to a beginner's class and you take a six-week class and you get six sessions, we'll open it and open it and open it and open it so that you get the full set of instructions. And even after you've gotten that full set of instructions, there is another set of full instructions. So it, it keeps getting deeper and deeper as the mind begins to settle down and see clearly, what is this? I'm living in this body and I've been given this life, but nobody's really talked to me about what that's about. Right? You know, our parents have told us a few things about how we should be, and that's helpful. But it, but most of the time, we're not spending a whole lot of time really investigating this mind, heart, and body. So meditation is designed to do that. And it kind of naturally happens after it's unfolded for a while. Uh, you know, it's like every other discipline, you have a you know, a, an introductory level, and then it deepens, and it deepens, and it deepens, and it deepens, and it becomes more and more profound. But it's difficult. So you need patience, and determination, and generosity of heart, and kindness, and loving awareness, and all kinds of qualities that along with teaching you the meditation uh, uh, techniques we teach so that it becomes a life. And that's, I was being a bit 
cute when I said 16 hours, but it's really true. That's my, that's, when I wake up in the morning, my resolve is to be present until I go back to sleep. Right? So that, and, but, but that, but I can do, and I, and then I actually sit in formal meditation, but the formal meditation is just to calm the mind and body. And then to be able to move through the day with presence, with every single person that I meet. And I don't by any means do it perfectly. Right? Let's get that out right on the, that's disclosure, right? Full disclosure. I do not do it perfectly. But I can catch myself in the midst of being totally mindless and completely away. Because of my meditation practice over all of these years, I can return and see, oh, I was mindless. Let me start again. Let me start again. And those periods of mindlessness shrink over time. And the periods of mindfulness grow over time. Thank you. You're welcome. I wanted to thank you for what you shared about um, what you experienced during the retreat, the five days with your mom, um, and ask a clarifying question. Um, when I'm in meditation at times, I will have some thoughts come up that are painful for me, and I sometimes have a hard time distinguishing um, whether I am being a masochist and my mind's just torturing me with something that I feel like I've resolved or whether there's something more to be felt or experienced to let that go. And I don't always know how to distinguish that. So you're trying to distinguish between whether you're a masochist and making, <laughs> driving yourself crazy and what's and the other alternative? And if there's something there more for me, like if there's something there for oh, me, so if there's something in sitting what's, with it, yeah, what's coming up, that right? Or am I just torturing myself? And do I? Uh, yeah, that's my question. Yeah. So you know, that's a hard question to answer because I'm not in your mind. But what happens if we are if we're alert and awake and aware of what's arising in our mind stream. <laughs> this is, it's hard to explain, but I'll try. As soon as we see it, and those of you who've, who are somewhat experienced meditators will recognize this, as soon as you see it, it disappears. But you have to see it in the right way. And you're not seeing it so that it will disappear, because good luck with that. It will not disappear if that's the reason you're seeing it. But it will disappear because you recognize it as thought. When you're meditating, you are letting go of that um, habit that the mind has of proliferating and following everything that rises. I have a monsieur, somebody who gives me a massage because I've got a hand problem. And he talks incessantly. <laughs> Drives me crazy, but he's so good. that I. <laughs> but what I, uh, I actually had a session with him today, and what I noticed was that 
he was he actually speaks everything that comes into his mind. And it was so wonderful and fascinating for me as a meditation teacher to have this opportunity to watch his mind. That's what I was I, that's what I decided I would do so that I wouldn't go crazy. Right? I just started like watching his mind. It was the best thing in the world. He would talk about um you know uh he would start by saying something about what he was doing with my hand and then suddenly he would switch to something that he did with his mother's hand right and then he would start telling me about what happened in the hospital with his mother and then from that he would start telling me about the conversation he had with the doctor so i'm watching how this chain of associations is happening in his mind and he's not a meditator so i couldn't say to him frank watch your mind watch what watch how it's just jumping you know so he could start out with my hand and wind up talking to his mother's doctor and we do that all the time right now what's the alternative is if he's with my hand he's with my hand and even though it there may be a flash in his mind about his mother's hand if he's a meditator he can notice that the flash happened notice that it's a thought about his mother and return to my hand because that's what he's doing in the present moment and he'd be silent but i'm not his meditation teacher so i don't tell him right he hasn't asked me but i, I thought wow you know he probably so much more be so much more effective even though he's very good if he were present with just my hand you know the feel of his thumb on my hand and what's happening and all of that and but the only way he can do that is if he notices the thought arising and lets it go notices the thought arising and what to address your the other part of your question is what is important that arises in meditation trust me it will come again they say that we have something like i always say the wrong number but so let's say 100,000 thoughts in a day that's a lot right and 95% of them are not new so that means that um 95% of our thoughts are re- recurring so if something comes up in your mind in meditation that you think may be important to you don't worry it will come up again you don't have to like grasp it right then and chew on it and solve the problem right there because that's not training your mind to presence you're it's probably something about the past or something about the future it's not about the present moment so this training of being in the present moment is to strengthen the mind so that it's not dragged here and dragged there and dragged there and dragged there but that it's steady so that when you do take on an issue you do it with a really strong and steady mind it's that's the nobility that i've been talking about that's where our nobility comes from we can take our seat really solidly on the seat 
and see what is seen, felt what is felt, hear what is heard, and know what is known. And we're not wavering. We're not talking about the hand and the mother's hand and the doctor and the hospital and all of that. Because the mind, it, it weakens the mind to do that. So don't worry if something comes up. And it's important that that insight that you need must, will come in that moment. Mm-mm. It'll come when it's ready. And you can have faith in that. So that's all we have time for. So thank you for your attention and your kindness and your practice and for uh, your willingness to be in the world in a, in a way that is without greed, hatred, and delusion, even if you've not got that perfectly just the desire, the resolve, the practice, and the patience to allow those forces to be lessened in your life and for the forces of kindness and generosity and wisdom, compassion, to grow. helps us all. So this goodness that we create by being together, we don't hold for ourselves. But we we disperse it, we send it out to bless all beings, and we dedicate this goodness to the benefit, the happiness, the welfare, the well-being, and the awakening of all beings everywhere without exception, wishing that all beings be happy and peaceful, safe and protected from all harm and danger, healthy and strong, and live with complete ease, in complete freedom, and freedom from suffering. May it be so. Thank you. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.